Well, I'd like to begin this morning by inviting you to turn to Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9, where we find the 12 disciples reeling in their minds because of a shocking announcement by Jesus Christ. Right after the disciples demonstrate their understanding of who Jesus is, and and Peter makes this great announcement, you are the Messiah from God. Jesus, in verse 21 of Luke 9, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, this is new to them. Suffering, rejection, death. This is not where they thought this was going when they were following him. They thought they were following Jesus, their Messiah, that is, their soon to be king. And he would now journey to Jerusalem, he's saying and suffer, and be killed? I mean, I'm sure they heard the part about raised, but I think reading part of the Gospels, you really get the idea they didn't get that part. Or at least they were still focused so much on these words of suffering and death that it sort of went right over their heads that he said he would be raised. They couldn't believe their ears about the suffering and death. And we know from Peter's reaction in this, to the same announcement, this is recorded for us in Matthew's gospel, that they did not take this news very well. This is where Peter, of course, takes the Lord aside. Literally, it, the verb is like taking him aside like a child. And, and Matthew's gospel says that Peter began to rebuke Jesus, saying, no, 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 that's not the plan. This is not what's going to happen. But we continue to see that they are deeply perplexed by this, even in Luke's gospel. Because nine or ten days later, Jesus makes the announcement to them again. And we see this if you look down in Luke 9, verses 44 through 45. And, and we, I, I have the text on the screen, as I normally do. And basically, this is just text this morning. Uh, there's going to be a lot of passages we go to. And uh, my pastor in Minnesota used to say, we're going to go everywhere today preaching the gospel. And, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at a lot of texts. But, but Jesus, we, we see their perplexity still in Luke 9, 44 through 45. Jesus tells them, let these words sink into your ears. Because they weren't getting it. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. I'm not really sure what this lack of perception is. I haven't really done a deep dive into that that phrase. But you often remember that when you're reading through the Gospels, the disciples would hear parables sometimes and and, uh, Jesus would say, you don't get this, you don't understand it. Sometimes they were slow to understand, just like we're slow to understand things. All they knew was that their expectation of a kingdom and a messianic king was being dashed to pieces because of Jesus' new plan. It was new to them anyway. But you already know Jesus' plan, not being new, is a mission that already included the cross 
For him, the way to glory was punctuated with a horrifying death by crucifixion because the cross and resurrection was the focal point of Jesus's mission. It was the centerpiece, the point to which all of salvation history looks forward to and the point to which all of salvation history after the cross looks back upon. Because the accomplishment and glorious fulfillment of our salvation is made possible only through Jesus' death for our sins on the cross and his resurrection, which is the only thing, it's the only thing that can ever provide us forgiveness from God. But not only did Jesus announce his own death, Jesus also called upon his disciples to identify with his death by being willing to follow him to this same end. And that is where it starts hitting close to home for us. So if you look back up at verse 23 of Luke chapter 9, we're still in Luke 9 here. Jesus challenges them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. That's a daily decision. And follow me. I want you to focus on, on this phrase, if anyone would come after me. Now, it involves taking up the cross and it involves following him. This is not three different actions. They're one action. And, and taking up the cross is, is the willingness to take up the, the, that part of the cross that would, they would make the victims carry to their point of execution, which means if you take up the cross, you are moving on to your own death, your own martyrdom. God might not ask you to die as a martyr, but you're on the road to that place, that destination. But it starts with being willing to come after Christ. This phrase in the uh, original language literally says, if anyone desires to come after me, if anyone wishes, if he wills, if he wants to follow behind me, walking in my steps, taking my path, And this is still a call that is directed to us through the gospel today. Do you actually desire to follow after Jesus Christ? It is a question every one of us needs to probe. Do you really want to follow Jesus? I mean, really? Do you want to be identified with him even though they're putting him to death? even though they may desire to put you to death also. I know that seems like a very far thought from some of us here in Western safe United States, safe for now. But I would say that believers over the world uh, through all of time have had different answers to that question because they have had, they've been in environments and places where they have been squeezed together through persecution. Do you desire to come after him? Do you desire to be his witnesses? To actively represent him? Because Jesus calls us to leave our personal pathway of comfort and preference and familiarity and take up a cross and follow Jesus instead. And don't miss this. We hear this so often, I think it sometimes doesn't register with us. He's calling us to love him so much, we are willing to sacrifice our lesser loves, our lesser plans, our lesser ideas of of what is in front of us for his sake. In other words, Jesus does not ask us to view our life's journey with a career on the horizon of the life 
of, of the path of our life. If you, if you imagine yourself walking down that path, what is in the distance? What is on the horizon that you're going to get to someday? He's saying it's not a career. It's not family. It's not personal goals or accomplishments. Jesus asks us to move toward our place of execution, our own martyrdom. He doesn't say we're all going to die as martyrs, but again, he wants us to move in that direction. And every goal we have and every decision that we make and every opportunity, our career, our family, our accomplishments, whatever it is that you have in your mind on the path of life are merely those circumstances along the way of our willingness to follow Jesus Christ even unto death. That's how he wants us to envision our lives. When we look on the horizon, he wants us to see a cross. That's what he's calling us to do. In this chapter, Jesus begins his journey, his own journey to the cross. Not only does he announce his death twice in this context, but he actually begins physically to make his way to his place of execution, all the way back here in Luke 9. There's a point in every one of the synoptic gospels where Jesus begins this journey, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And here he begins it in Luke 9. And the longest journey of, of Jesus to the cross is in Luke's gospel. And we'll see that here today and next Lord's Day. Most of Jesus' earthly ministry takes place in the region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. His hometown, Nazareth, was located about 15 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus lived much of the time with Peter. We can tell by reading in between the lines uh, Peter lives in Capernaum, uh, which is on the north shore of Galilee. And, and the other cities that Jesus visited that we read about, Gennesaret, Bethsaida, Nain, uh, the Decapolis, which is like, like a, t- a group of 10 cities, Cana, all of these are on the Sea of Galilee or in the region of Galilee. And Jesus also made many ministry trips up above Galilee and all around Galilee. Now, now he, he does go back and forth to Jerusalem, but we don't know that until we get to John's gospel. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all we do is see Jesus around Galilee. That that is the way they tell the story of of Jesus' ministry. However, I want you to look at Luke 9.51. Again, we're we're still in Luke 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And after we read that verse in Luke 9, very soon after that, Jesus is, everything we read about in Luke, he's making his way toward Jerusalem and he's going to be executed. So now his time of death for sins and his resurrection is nearing. And he turns from Galilee and sets his face resolutely south where he will be tried and falsely accused and will suffer unparable pain and humiliation and death. So what we read in Luke's gospel from this point all the way to his entrance into Jerusalem in chapter 19, which Micah read for us this morning, on the day we know as Palm Sunday, it's, it's like a 10-chapter journey. And what we read in Luke's gospel in that 10 chapters expands our understanding of the context of what's going on in Jesus' life as he makes his way to the cross and to the resurrection. And Luke reminds us that Jesus is heading in this direction at various points of his gospel. In Luke chapter 13, verse 22, it says, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And in chapter 10, he's already commissioned 72 disciples and sent them out ahead of him into the towns and villages because he's going to go there. 
making his way to Jerusalem. In, in chapter 17, verse 11, Luke writes, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And in 1831, it, it says, as Jesus is getting very close to the end of this journey, Luke tells us, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, up in elevation. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, my question this morning for you is, what if we were to follow Jesus Christ on this journey? I mean, that's what he calls us to do earlier in the text, right? To, to come after him, to be willing to follow him, to want to follow him. What if we were following Jesus in the text of Luke's gospel? What would we learn from Jesus' example? What would we learn from his concerns? And if we are imitating his example, how would we live if we were really coming after Jesus Christ, taking up our cross and following him, that is to imitate him? And so today and next Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, we're going to do just that. We're going to follow after Jesus in Luke's gospel, following him as he comes to the crux of his mission, which is the cross and the resurrection. Now, Time does not permit us to follow Jesus everywhere in Luke. In fact, a lot of the chapters that we're, we're covering would, would be taken up with a lot of parables that Jesus gives that are unique to Luke's gospel. You don't read these parables anywhere else in, in any of the other gospels. But in order to make this feasible for two sermons uh, long enough, uh, or I should say short enough, um, we're going to focus on his journey through the lens of Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. And among all the texts we're going to be looking at, this is what I'm thinking of as our text, the, the text I'm preaching. It could get very confusing, so I've put this in asterisks here, so you can see that this is the, this is the main text. So um, uh, in chapter 13, as we saw a minute ago, Luke reminds us that Jesus is on his way, way to Jerusalem, He's working his way through towns. He's, he's staying with people who will keep him. This is the way they would do it. He's teaching and calling people to repentance. So when you read these words, it is in the context of Jesus having set his face toward Jerusalem. And in verse 31, it says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So let's unpack this text a little bit so far. Verse 31 says that there were some Pharisees who came to Jesus and said, get away from here, Herod wants to kill you. Now, we're gonna set aside for a second the question of the Pharisees' motivation here. There may have been Pharisees who were very kind to Jesus, and we do meet some of them in the Gospels. They're not all uh, against Jesus. Or they may have been Pharisees who hated Jesus here and they're trying to find a way to get him to move out because whenever Jesus comes around, he sort of causes issues for them, okay? Um, you can tell by some of the questions that, My that Micah was reading. Even if they try to trap him or whatever, they can never catch the guy. I mean, he's so wise. He knows, he knows everything. And, and so 
uh, and he's, he's always saying things that, that cause people, uh, cause the Jews to doubt the Pharisees' leadership and, and, and so forth. And so they may have been telling him, hey, look, we know Herod's trying to kill you so, so that Jesus would you know, hurry up and, and, and move further south out of the reason uh, toward Jerusalem. But let's think for a moment about this Herod who is supposedly the one who wants to kill Jesus. Who is this Herod? Well, you remember Herod the Great is ruling all of Israel and the surrounding regions when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Herod the Great was made a ruler by the Roman government. Uh, He was allowed to rule that part of the world under Rome's authority. And Herod the Great was ruthless and power-hungry, and he was paranoid about anybody who tried to take his throne. He would even kill his own family members if he thought that they were trying to... uh, to, to take his throne. And so when Jesus shows up and the wise men come and say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? That's why it says he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him because if Herod was troubled, everybody else was really waiting to find out who was going to die. And so this is, this is not the same Herod, but I'm talking about Herod the Great that we meet at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. So uh, this is Herod the Great's son, that we're talking about here in this text. This is the next Herod, one of the next Herods. So wanting to kill Jesus sort of runs in the family, if you know what I'm saying here. So you see, by the time Herod the Great died, he had only three sons left who he had not executed. (laughs) So in his will, he had divided up his kingdom into these various regions, and he uh, he had left the three regions to be run by his three boys. Herod's son Archelaus was given Judea, where Jerusalem was located, and Samaria. Archelaus is mentioned in Matthew 2.22, where it says that Joseph knew it was safe to come out of Egypt with Mary and Jesus because he had heard that Archelaus was ruling in Judea in the place of his father. And Archelaus was actually a terrible ruler. So about 10 years into his reign, he was exiled by Rome. And after that, the Roman government stepped in and decided to put Judea and Samaria back under their direct control. So you know what they did? They appointed temporary rulers whose duty it was to watch over Samaria and the area of Jerusalem and keep peace in that region. Who do you think the Roman official was governing Judea and Samaria at the time of Luke 13? None other than Pontius Pilate. It was because of Herod's son's mismanagement of the government that put Pontius Pilate, in human terms, on the scene during Jesus's trial. That's how Pilate, who has no connection with the Jews, comes into the picture. He happened to be the one appointed from Rome at the time when Jesus was there. And we'll see more of that as we get into this next week. But there were two other sons of Herod, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. Herod Philip was given land to govern east of Galilee, and Herod Antipas, which is our Herod here in in, in Luke 13, was given land that included the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus grew up in Nazareth and later ministered in many cities which were under the control of Herod Antipas. This is the Herod who put John the Baptist into prison. This is the Herod who was tricked into beheading John the Baptist. And back in Luke 9, 7, Herod was getting very nervous, this Herod Antipas, because he heard about Jesus and thought maybe John the Baptist has come back from the dead. 
So, so getting back to our text now, that's a little bit of background there. Getting back to our text, in the mind of the Pharisees, to tell Jesus that Herod Antipas was looking for him, to kill him, should have made Jesus very nervous and want to get out of there because he was in the region of Galilee and uh, if he ventured south, he would come into the jurisdiction of Pilate, which wouldn't be as threatening at the time for him. But was Jesus threatened by any of this? Not according to verse 32. He said to them, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finished my course. What he means here is, I am not threatened by this. He calls Herod Antipas a fox, probably saying that Herod was viciously cunning and mean, but was not an animal that he was very much afraid of. Herod wasn't a lion. He was a fox. He was a varmint. He was a troublesome, wild animal, but not life-threatening. No one could thwart Jesus's mission. And Jesus said, in essence, go tell that fox, I will continue on my mission in my own time. And there is nothing a thousand Herods can do to stop me. I will continue my mission today and tomorrow. In other words, I will not be interrupted. Then he says, the third day I finish my course. In other words, I will decide when my course is finished. It will not be on a day appointed by you, Herod. My mission is divinely appointed. It is a mission determined by God the Father, not by Herod the fox. And we can't help but notice, can we? Doesn't that stand out to you? Jesus' third day language. Because Jesus will rise on the third day. That is the day victory will be sealed. Nevertheless, when Jesus makes this statement about Herod, he is, in fact, on his way to Jerusalem. So Jesus wants to make it very clear that he is not leaving the region of Galilee because Herod is threatening him. He's leaving because this is God's will. That's why, if you look at verse 33, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. That's the third day. On, in other words, on my way out of Galilee and to Jerusalem, out from under Herod's rule and under Pilate's rule. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And when Jesus says that, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He's being somewhat sarcastic here. Of all places where the Messiah, the King of the Jews, should be welcomed, it should be in the holy city, Jerusalem. And yet the Jews had a long, sordid history of murdering its own prophets, sent by God himself, because of the hardness and stubbornness of their hearts. We do not know who many of these prophet martyrs were, but there are allusions to them in the Old Testament, several instances where God would send his prophets to them and they would execute their prophets. So Jesus, in essence, claims that Herod Antipas, a Roman ruler in Galilee, is not a threat to him. But in Jerusalem, in the midst of his own people, their Messiah they would kill him. And Jesus laments this fact that he's going to be put to death by the will of his own people. Not for his own sake, but for their sake. And that's why, as the text continues, he cries out in verse 34, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, because Jerusalem, the heart of his people, will reject the Messiah and his mission, they will experience judgment, not salvation. Jerusalem will not welcome their Messiah and Lord. They will crucify their Messiah and Lord. So they will not be saved until that great day, a a day that has not yet arrived, a day that we still look forward to when the people of Jerusalem proclaim with one accord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That, That catapults us, I think, to the end times, but we will not go back there uh, uh, right now. We spent enough time, right, talking about the end times. Uh, we'll, we'll go back there some other time. However, there were some in Jesus' day who would welcome him and, and, and welcome him into the city. And their welcome is the event that we especially celebrate on the day that we call Palm Sunday, and we read about that in Luke's gospel in chapter 19. I know Micah read some of this, but if you'll look over to chapter 19, Jesus finally comes to his destination, Jerusalem, and he he procures this young donkey as the gospels record for us, and he begins his descent down the Mount of Olives and into the city, and verse 36 says, that they were spreading their cloaks on the road over which Jesus rode, which is the sign of honor. And Luke doesn't mention this, but Matthew and Mark say the others cut the branches from the trees, the palm branches, and laid them in the pathway. So who are these people who are showing Jesus such honor? Verse 37 says, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, his disciples, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. You see, it's not the crowds in general, but those who had been following Jesus, those who had been touched by him, those who had been following him and waiting for this day. Some of them may have uh, traveled down from Galilee. We're we're about to enter the Passover, and there was a lot of movement in the land when it came to festivals, and people would come from the north and come from the south, and a lot of times they would convene around Jerusalem and in Jerusalem. So his disciples are there, the the multitude of disciples that he had, not just the 12. And in verse 38, they're crying something very close to what Jesus says back in chapter 13, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, that we just read. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, these are the disciples of Jesus and the the large group of the disciples who had gathered around Jesus. I I think the 72 that he sends out into the villages ahead of him to to walk through Jerusalem, they're probably greatly represented in this crowd. Plus several others joining in because they believe a Messiah is coming to Jerusalem and finally the king is going to come. Rome is going to be overthrown. They're very excited about overthrown. Uh, They're very excited about this, and Jesus has purposefully staged his entrance into Jerusalem using the symbols of a king. He rides a donkey like Solomon rides in 1 Kings 1, riding on the king's mule to his coronation. Just like Zechariah 9.9 prophesied, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus was coming. 
styled as a king, coming to his throne. There's no doubt about this. And what follows in Zechariah 9 that I just read from are amazing prophecies of the mighty salvation of God's people from their enemies. In the minds of the disciples, this is the day. It's not some future day like we've seen like in Revelation. It's happening now, they think. But notice not everyone feels this way. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Notice, it's the disciples who are rejoicing. Rebuke your disciples. Why? Because they were declaring Jesus to be king. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. But notice Jesus is not disillusioned by their honor that the city is finally welcoming him for real. Jesus knows what's about to happen. So it says in verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He's thinking of the destruction of Jerusalem, which happens in 70 AD. He says, they will tear you down to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, Israel as a whole would reject the Messiah. You see, Jesus knows that even though there are some who are following him and declaring him to be the king, Jerusalem as a whole, the nation as a whole will not accept him. And yet he set his face toward Jerusalem. His mission was urgent. I'm going to do this day and this day following God's will. And on the third day, I will finish my course. He has his mindset. He's urgent about his mission. Why is he urgent? I think that as we follow Jesus on his journey to the cross and beyond, we realize that there were several reasons Jesus' mission was very urgent. And these reasons should instruct us. They should burden us. They should make us urgent like Jesus was. If we desire to come after him to imitate his example as his disciples. And all of these reasons, I think, are embedded in our text in Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. But I also think we see them depicted in Jesus' ministry. And I'm going to give you the first one this morning. Next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll look at the others. This is all just sort of setting this up this morning. And I want to look at one of the reasons that Jesus is so urgent on his mission. And it is simply this. Jesus has urgency in his mission because he has compassion for people. Jesus went to Jerusalem. He completed his mission. He was earnest about it. He was serious about it because he loved people. He was compassionate for people. We were his mission. And no one was going to deter him from his mission. When the Pharisee said, beware, Herod is trying to kill you, Jesus says, tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. Demons and cures. Why did Jesus say that? Because he's referring to his own mission program, which he announced at the beginning of his ministry, all the way back in Luke chapter 4. It's from Isaiah chapter 62. 
In Luke chapter 4, right after his baptism, he's uh, in the anointing of the Spirit. Jesus is in the synagogue in his hometown, and the Isaiah scroll is handed to him, remember? And, and Luke uses the word to unroll the scroll. It's an interesting hapex legomena for some of you in the, in the New Testament. He unrolls the scroll, and he finds the place in Isaiah 6, uh, 6 62, where there's no, no chapter divisions. He just knows where it is in the scroll. And he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If we were to examine this mission statement today, we would see that Jesus came to rescue people who were bankrupt spiritually to proclaim good news of the poor. And those who were bound morally proclaim liberty to captives. And those who were blind intellectually give insight to the blind. And those who were broken emotionally, liberty to the oppressed. His miracles that he performed, healing the blind and deaf and lame and casting out demons were acts of mercy and kindness that signaled something far greater that he came to do for humanity. That is to release them from their greatest problem, their problem of sin and bondage to sin and its consequences. Jesus yearned for people. His heart ached for them. He was moved with compassion in the gospels for them. And Luke makes this yearning explicit in his gospel by recording for us these two laments that we've already read this morning. One in Luke 13 and the other in Luke 19. Jesus weeping for the destruction that is going to come upon them. They hated him, many of them. But he wept for them. He loved them. And we follow Jesus to Jerusalem and we see that Jesus is in earnest about his mission because he really cared about people. He had compassion upon them. Meeting their needs was his life agenda. It's so easy for, uh, for us, I think, to look at people and think only in terms of how we relate to them or regard to them. Uh, we think sometimes, what can that person do for me? Um, sometimes we think about, oh, I owe that person something, and we feel indebted to them. Uh, some people, we think, oh, I really admire that person. Or we think, I don't really care for that person. Others we look at with jealousy, we think about how successful they are. Some we, looked at, we look at with contempt, we think about how unsavory they are. I would never live that way, I would never do that. I can't believe, uh, you know, and maybe sadly sometimes we think, oh, that person would never be saved. They would never come to Christ. As if they are less savable than we were when we came to Christ. Any number of things. My point is we look at people and we see relationships that are human relationships in this world, but that's not the way Jesus looked at people. When he looked at people, he saw people with needs and he wanted to help them. He, he wanted to help them by giving them something eternal. He wanted to help them by giving really his whole life for them. He, he lived till about, what, 33 years old before he was crucified and risen. And those 33 years, uh, to our knowledge, are full of uh, Jesus wanting to help people. He was full of compassion. Jesus turns toward Jerusalem, and on his journey to the cross, we see in so many ways his compassion. There's one passage that might stand out, I'll just use by way of example. 
in Luke chapter 15, we're familiar with this, where it says tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Think about that. He lived in such a way where these sinners wanted to gather around him. We live holy lives sometimes. I mean, hopefully all the time, right? But we, we live, we're people who, who try to live holy lives, but sometimes we do it in a way that kind of repels people who are sinners away from us. And so they don't feel like they can get near us because we're, we're, we're too holy. Jesus is the most holy son of God. And yet he attracted for some reason sinners to himself. And I can think of no other reason for it than the fact that he genuinely loved people and they knew it. And so, and so it says the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. These, the, the, when it says that the tax collectors, I mean, the minds of the Jews, those are the worst sinners. They're not just sinners, they're traitors of their own people. And we won't go into why. But this is, a, this is not a savory crowd. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Of course they are. They're trying to live holy lives too. They, they, a lot of them, they, they are, they really are. But they're not attractive, or they, they're not attracting, I should say, to sinners. So they grumbled, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He's fellowshipping with them. Did they actually eat with the sinner? That, that shows that you approve of what they're doing. You know, if you sit down and have a meal, you're sharing in fellowship with them. And so you're giving approval of that. So this can't be somebody we have to reckon with. He can't be the son of God. He can't be the holy one of Israel. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost? In other words, go into the open country and go after that one lost sheep until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says, rejoice with me, I found my sheep that was lost. Jesus says, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And the Pharisees looked at the tax collectors and sinners and they saw people who were unworthy of fellowship with a Pharisee. They saw unholy people. They saw people who were not worth their time. People who would render them unclean if they associated with them. But what did Jesus see? He saw poor, lost sheep and loved them. And he seeks them. And he finds them. And notice in the text, he shoulders them. <laughs> he rejoices over them. We see Jesus thinking of lost sinners as gentle sheep whom he treats with tenderness. Did you get that? He sees lost sinners as gentle sheep whom he treats with tenderness. And when we see him weeping over Jerusalem in chapter 13, he thinks of lost people as chicks. And he their mother when baby chicks scatter all around and they're cold and frightened, they rush together to the, under the wings of their mother to find this warmth and this security. It's a common picture of devotion and tenderness. Helpless lost lambs who need to be rescued and nurtured. Frightened cold chicks needing warmth and protection. That's what Jesus saw when he looked at humanity. What do we see? When we look at those lost people at our workplace or in our neighborhoods or in our grocery stores, 
or on our campuses or our community meetings or our ministries? What do we really see? Merely people whose lifestyle repulses us or maybe we look at them with some kind of uh, envy. Maybe we like their popularity or their fame or their affluence. Or maybe we see people who are a bother to us. You know the famous line, I love ministry, it's people I can't stand, you know. Or do we see people as a means of lifting our own status? We have a very human perspective sometimes, a very worldly perspective on people. But do we have a heavenly perspective? Do we see people with needs? Do we yearn to help them with the same kind of committed tenderness indicated by our Lord as he journeys to Jerusalem? When we talk about the notion of partnering together to encourage one another to share the gospel, to make ourselves his witnesses, praying together in discipleship groups about reaching specific people with the gospel, there's, there's commonly things about that that make us nervous. We're not sure how people will respond. We don't know how the situation is going to go down. But I can promise you one thing, those fears do not seem as great and those nervous, that nervousness sort of fades into the background if there is genuinely a love for people and a desire to meet their needs. And that is one of the things that it means to come after Jesus, to imitate him with respect to how he cares for people. There was an urgency in Jesus' journey to the cross in his resurrection. But that also means he was urgent in his love for people. I think that we need to pray that God gives us love for people. We can practice sharing the gospel. We can pray for people. We can have those opportunities. But if we don't have love, we are not where Jesus wants us to be. And I don't think we will be that successful if we don't really love people like he did. So praise God, Jesus loved us. He called us. He saved us. We were one of the reasons he would not diverse, divert from his mission, which took him to the cross. Now, will we follow after him and get on our mission to reach others with the same kind of tenacity, with the, the same kind of stubbornness that we see in Jesus because he was driven by love for other people? Father, thank you.